When I was a kid, I found this incredible book in my dad's library called The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell and Bill Moyers. And I'm sure a lot of you have read it or seen the PBS series. And the thing that really captivated me about this book was a refrain that described the core of the hero's journey. And that refrain was, follow your bliss. And when you first hear that, or at least when I did, and I first read it, it's kind of sounded, you know, like the state of ultra calm serenity. Not that that's a bad thing, but that's not the kind of bliss we're talking about here. Joseph Campbell puts it this way, that following your bliss is that the life you ought to be living is the one you are living. Or in the words of another wise soul, Dolly Parton, who said, find out who you are and do it on purpose. And our guest today and the story you're going to hear today made me think about this idea of following your bliss, feeling that there's something important to do, and almost the compulsion to be the one or one of the people doing it, and then making it happen. Let's go. The very best medicine that we provide is tangerines and socks. If the answer is no, it's, hey, have a great day, and you keep walking. And that's one of the salient differences from the ER. When you come into the ER, we own that problem, you and I. Unfortunately, our healthcare system, honestly, our own profession has created often a treadmill that we have to spin faster and faster and doesn't always lend itself to rewarding some of the best parts about what we do or how we do it. In order to be effective, I need to find those roots of empathy in every encounter. And that's actually what brings me joy in the work that I do. We have to think about a healthcare system that actually connects with patients as people, as us. That's the voice of Dr. Dan Bissell. Dan is an emergency physician in Portland, Oregon, and one of the founders of Portland Street Medicine. Portland Street Medicine is a team that delivers care directly to the homeless in homeless camps, on the corner, in the street. And in this interview, Dan and I talk about what happens when he and his team are in the field, the logistics of what street medicine is doing, and get into just kind of some of the nitty gritty. But equally, I think that this conversation in the larger picture kind of gives a reflection on what happens in everyday medical practice where we think there's these particular constraints on what we do, on how we approach issues, on benchmarks we have to meet. Things that someone who's practicing in an austere environment, such as a garbage-strewn back alley, might be free from. And then, is there a way to bring those two seemingly disparate approaches together? I was looking on... I was stalking you on the internet. Let's just let's just <laughs> say that. Let's just say that. We all do it, let's be honest. <laughs> and I saw a picture of you. You're squatting down. You're under an underpass. Yeah. You've got on a backpack. Yeah. There's you're wearing a red t-shirt with some white letters on it. There's two people with you that have the same t-shirt, and you are talking to a guy in a black coat. Mm -hmm. Hey, you know, there's a lot of debris around there. It looks like he's homeless. Yep. I'm I'm guessing. Yep. What's happening in that picture, kind of on, on the micro scale and on the grander scale? We were in East 
Portland out off of 205. There's a there's a camp there, and we were out on our street rounds with Portland Street Medicine, and I was leading the team that day. There's an underpass where there's actually a wire cage that's open, and a lot of people camp through there. With me was one of our nurses and one of our social workers. That was kind of a classic or typical scene from one of our street rounds. Um, our teams go out currently three, three and a half days a week, um, and we're in the process of trying to scale that up. Um, in 2019, we saw about 1,500 patients, um, and we've grown um, rapidly and exponentially in the last two years. So it's been a really exciting experience. What's in that backpack? And <laughs> right, like we we're such gear nuts right, in, right. in medicine, but what's in that backpack? And is it the same every time you go out? I'll be honest with you. The very best medicine that we provide um, is tangerines and socks. Um, we do a fair amount of healthcare, but most of the medicine is quite honestly, stupidly simple. It's a huge amount of wound care. It's some basic primary care. It's certainly some cellulitis and some things like that. It's a lot of care coordination and a lot of social services. From a medical perspective, it's actually really pleasant because there's thing, approachable problems that you can help solve. And you don't typically need CTs and lots of tests to solve these. These are visual diagnoses. These are basic things. And so we carry a lot of wound supplies. We hand out a lot of wound supplies. We carry a few medications. We carry Narcan with us, obviously. Do you carry the nasal Narcan? Both nasal and nasal. And have you had to use it? Uh, we have not yet actually had to deploy it. We hand them out, though, also. Do you hand them out by request, or do you, uh, you meet someone who is using IV opiates and you say, well... You should probably have this. Both, both, honestly. Um, and you and you educate on the street. Oh, absolutely. You know, we're we're talking about this Portland street medicine, which mm-hmm. which we'll get to some of the details on that. But as you're describing this, looking at that picture, I see you, I see the social worker, and I see the nurse. I wonder if you got a hundred coins in gold. Mm-hmm. What's the value of each one of those? Who could you do without? Could you do without the doc? That's a great question. And surprisingly, none of them, but for reasons that you might not expect. So who delivers the most long-term value? Probably the social worker. Obviously, we do see clinical scenarios that that do require more urgent intervention, and, and that's great. And we're there for that. And we do provide a lot of care and, and I think avoid a lot of needless urgent care or emergency care, which is great. Because we come as a team, because we approach with a stethoscope over our shoulders and we walk camp to camp, tent to tent, just saying, hey, Portland Street Medicine, a couple of doctors, nurse, social worker out checking on folks, anybody need any help? We offer our services and we come to them. And that's such a unique change and such a unique reversal of the the usual paradigm that we're met with incredible warmth. And in fact, now, as we go back to sites over and over again and camps over and over again, we're met with, hey, it's our street team, they're here. And they're starting to recognize us. And a huge part of what we're actually doing is building continuity and starting to build some trust. And we find that then over multiple visits, we start to make more headway. And you know, there's that clinic right nearby. I bet we could get you in there. Because our goal is really not to provide definitive, comprehensive medical care on the streets. That's never going to be particularly successful. But if we can be the bridge that ultimately gets them into a setting of sustained care, that's where we're going. Do you use medical records? Kind of the bane of our existence. Right. I'm texting back and forth with a buddy of mine who's in Guatemala right now yeah. on a medical mission. And, I, and you know, I've got friends all over the world at the moment. Right. And one of the things they love is they don't have to deal with the BS administration nonsense. Right. Now, although it's good to write something down. So right. for the next, you know, talking about continuity of care, but they say there's no medical records, there's no 
payment. There's no admin. All I get to do is practice medicine in, in its purest form. Right. So how does that admin aspect work? There's no question that being out there and being able to operate in a freer environment changes your thinking about the way you deliver care, and it's incredibly satisfying. The answer to your question is yes, we do keep records because that is useful and important primarily from the perspective of continuity. We're right now primarily on paper records. We're in the process of moving over to an EHR because what it turns out is also important is that continuity relies on communication. And if we see somebody in the streets and we want to connect them with a clinic and we want to create that sense that you have a whole team behind you, that there are people trying to help you take a step up and out of the streets, um, we need to be able to communicate that effectively. So one of the surprising things about my experience in the streets has been that it's really changed my thinking about how we practice medicine in the ER and in a more traditional setting. And one of the most empowering things is to realize that we have an important voice and a voice that I think we haven't used enough in mainstream medicine. So many requirements are bolted on, particularly to the ER, which is the sort of focal point of, it seems like every compliance activity anybody ever dreamed up. And being able to go out in the streets and create this program de novo has allowed us to think about what's impactful, what's valuable, what do we need to record, what aligns with the way we're doing the work, what will allow us to communicate and create the best experience for that patient. And it's made me recognize that we need to empower ourselves as clinicians to start to take back that piece of our world. We've accepted over time so many things, so much from the EHR, so much from the compliance world, and I get it, and there are reasons for it, but ultimately, healthcare is getting rickier and rickier, and we have to come up with some meaningful solutions, and it turns out that if we continue to focus on the patient in front of us, and we focus on what's right for them, and we focus on the experience for the provider and for the patient, that we can come to meaningful, efficient solutions that don't rely on the layers of, of other things that we have. And I, I think seeing this has turned on a light bulb for me to say there's, there's an opportunity there for all of us as ER docs, as PAs, as nurses, as anybody who's working in that environment to start asking, well, hang on, let's think about this. What is the right way to do this? What's the best way we can do this? All the data actually shows that the most successful healthcare institutions are typically led by clinicians. And there's a reason because clinical medicine is hard and it's messy and it's complicated and it does require a lot of compliance. And we are in a litigious society, but somehow we have to get back to that roots, the roots of empathy, the roots of those fundamental things that actually brought us all to the healthcare experience and brought us into this profession. And strangely, being on the streets has allowed me to do that in my professional world in the ER and in the health system. You're kind of painting these strokes, like what's valuable, what's meaningful. And then like, and we kind of take things back and I feel myself just kind of sinking into this, oh, this <laughs> bit of this overwhelming. I mean, what do you, what can you do? You said a few things there. You said it's given you insight into what's meaningful and what's valuable. I think that there are things that we do that are extremely valuable. There are things that we do that are not at all. Right. What are some things that you didn't realize before but you've taken now from working in street medicine that you see, okay, here's things that are meaningful and valuable that we don't pay attention to and we undervalue. I guess I'd point to 
two principles. One is when you work in any extreme environment, uh, you mentioned Guatemala, international, you think about wilderness medicine, you're inherently working in an environment with constrained resources. And that forces you to be creative. That forces you to approach the same problems with new eyes and, and come up with different solutions. So I think that is a natural forcing function to make you ask, well, what do I really need to, to be able to accomplish some goal here? Most would agree that a lot of the activity that we do in the ER is frenetic and not necessarily high yield. If I think about even my own prescribing habits in the ER, where I used to just give everybody IV pain meds because they were in pain and that's what you did. And now we've switched the way we work in our ERs and um, we go through a rapid medical exam process. And so much more of it is done orally. And it turns out it works just as well. It's allowing us to sort of rethink and open our eyes to what is the most basic way that we can achieve what we're trying to achieve. And I think that that's a healthy, healthy process. I think the second piece that I've been giving a lot of thought to lately is the concepts around design thinking. And I've been doing a lot more thinking and reading about this because design thinking is an old concept and it's, it's so obvious it almost barely bears repeating, but it basically says, start with empathy. Start with understanding who or what you're designing for, and then out of that, start a process of rapid cycle evolution to try things to, and keep circling back to that empathetic impulse of what does this person need? What do you need? What do both parties in this, in this equation need? And I think those are some of the pieces that can allow us maybe some clarity and some insight into thinking differently about how we engage with our patients. Are you talking about empathy on an individual level or on both. an institutional level? Both. both. It applies. That's a great thing is I think it applies at many, many levels. So let me back up for a minute and let me explain kind of where Portland Street Medicine came from. Um, and I think that may link back to that sure. concept. Like any ER doc, I see tons of homeless or houseless people in the ER and like most got pretty frustrated by the experience frustrated. You were frustrated or they were frustrated. Me, well, both. Okay. I, yeah. I mean, frustrated by the interaction. I didn't feel like it was rewarding for me. I didn't always feel like I was able to help them and the recidivism they kept coming back. I knew many of them by name and I started to recognize that this is just an inherently frustrating part of the practice. And I don't feel like we're really helping people in a meaningful way. In my role as CEO of our group, we're large. I started thinking, I was fairly new to the role. I was like, okay, I think we should get involved in the community. And I started getting curious about ways that we as a large independent emergency medicine group could get involved. And around that time, the Enterprise Institute came out with their landmark um, study that showed that housing could be an effective healthcare intervention. And it kind of shifted the sands all of a sudden as people realized, whoa, hang on, this actually improves outcomes. Like physically housing people improves outcomes. Just like a healthy population could be a national security right. issue, right? Like these, these things that seem so unrelated are actually at the foundation of improving something. Right. And, and ironically, so stupidly obvious, you would think, but it actually, this was the first time they actually did a study to, to, to fundamentally prove it. So I got involved with an organization in Portland called the Oregon Harbor of Hope, which was a business community organization trying to approach homelessness and meaningful community level intervention. And in the course of joining that organization, being on the board there, I went out to Boston and I went to the uh, friend of mine hooked me up with Dr. Jesse Gato, who's the CMO of uh, Boston Coalition for Healthcare for the Homeless. It's an incredible organization. It's been around for, gosh, I don't know, almost 50 years now. They have like 25 shelters in their network. They have a 150-bed recuperative unit that's attached to the hospital. I mean, it is a really sophisticated organization. 
And my eyes just kind of went wide. I was like, this is extraordinary. I hear that. And I, and I wonder someone who is homeless on the street with that, would they potentially be getting better health care than someone who is uninsured absolutely possible. working? Yeah, absolutely possible. Uh, I mean, uh, that's not to underestimate the barriers <laughs> to being homeless. Right. Uh, Abs- so, absolutely. But I'm just thinking of, of the, Im- of the impact of this, not in the negative way that, Hey, there's somebody working who's uninsured, who's not getting this care. This is shining the light on a particular population and saying, how do we lift this population Correct. up? Correct. And they've been doing street rounds since the seventies. Um, they were some of the early pioneers there. And it turns out then I got really inspired by this concept concept of street medicine and taking what we do directly into the streets. And at that same time, a, a colleague of mine was retiring from our group and he's a PDM specialist, Dr. Bill Tupper. He's an amazing physician and has been involved in social issues throughout his career. And he, he and I were talking, he's like, you know, I still really want to stay involved. And I said, well, I'm doing this stuff. I'm, I'm learning. And I just came back from Boston. I had this incredible experience. And he's like, wow, this sounds really interesting. He said, I've been doing some reading. And he found the International Street Medicine Institute. And so he went out to that conference, which was in Pennsylvania that year, and met 500 people from across the world that are doing this work. And he came back with eyes wide saying, this is incredible. We have to do this. And around the same time, we had a a fellow ED nurse, Lacey McCarley, who'd done work in a community health clinic and kind of wanted to get back to some of that work. And Drew Grabham, who's this incredible social worker from OHSU and has been doing street outreach work for years um, and is probably, in my experience, the single most knowledgeable person I know about street outreach. He's sort of like the the Yoda of (laughs) of street outreach for me. I am just always amazed by what he tells me. Let me pause here for a second, because there are so many things that you can do with your time and energy. And not that this is not a great way to, to spend your time and energy. But you're the CEO of a massive emergency medicine group. You see patients in the ED. You've got a family, right? So you've got mm-hmm. all, all of these other things. Why this? Why not go work in the Himalaya? Why not? Why homeless? Right. Well, we... Um, and why, why you homeless? Why me, why yeah. me homeless? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think... ED docs make really unique and powerful entrepreneurs because when you think about the work that we do, we have an incredibly high tolerance for risk. We're willing to make decisions in the face of relative uncertainty, and we're willing to just try shit. (laughs) We're willing to just get out there and give it a go. And so literally the four of us came together and said, well, I don't know, let's see if we could do this. And we started going out in Bill's Subaru with a bag of tangerines and some socks. But there was a first step to go down that path. Was it just reading an article? Was it just somebody having a conversation with you? I think you? I was so blown away by what I saw in Boston. I mean, I started to recognize that there wasn't as much of a voice as I would have hoped in the homeless service community. There are some amazing clinics. I'm not by any means suggesting that. But a lot of people are focused on the specifics of housing and the economics, and they were actually fairly desperate for more clinical voices. And I thought, well, this is interesting. Maybe there's an opportunity here. And as I started to hear more of the stories and read more about it, I started to recognize that actually the roots of that problem speak volumes to what actually happens downstream in the ER. And so it became an interesting opportunity, and I quite frankly just got curious about understanding more of that. And then as as we started to go out in the back of Bill's Subaru and we started going tent to tent and just doing the work, 
my head exploded. Okay, I want to get <laughs> I want to get to that Subaru moment because I think that people in medicine, just in general, have this this two headed coin of domain transfer of you know because we are highly trained in this one area. It's like well, we can figure this other thing out very easily. And so this kind of thing is like, I'm just going to jump in and I'm just going to do it. Before you got into the Subaru, was there a process of, okay, we need to structure this. We need to you know, financially set this up. We need to get the website. We need to get the business. Or was it just, hey, let's just get in the Subaru, go find some people and see what happens. We started to envision that there was an opportunity here. And so we, we said, let's just go out and start doing the work. But from the get-go, we said, we'd like to create an organization that does this. And we'd like to create some structure around it. And so I've started a couple of companies. So I was already familiar with some of the process you need to go through to do that. And then we also, from the outset, kind of set a slightly different course from your typical street medicine program. We said, um, we want to stay independent. And I'll explain what that means in a minute. And we want to be able to scale. We want this to be meaningful. So it's not just four people in a Subaru. We want to actually scale this to the point that it has an impact. Right away, we actually incorporated and we, one of our early absolute godsends was Homer Williams, who's the chair of Oregon Harbor of Hope, ran into the CEO of Daimler of all things and said, Hey, I've got a group that's starting out and you need to give them a van. And he gave them a, literally an elevator pitch. And Daimler said, okay, they hooked us up with a Sprinter van. So all of a sudden we had a vehicle and capacity. And so we started from the get-go to scale fairly rapidly. We were able to fairly quickly figure out that we could credential under the HRSA, which means we could get, uh, we became a federal free mobile clinic, which means we had the legal med mal umbrella indemnification. And that meant we could credential providers and provide them protection when they volunteered their services with us. And so within a few months, Wait, we so up the and running. government pays the med mal? Uh, well, because federal employees are immune from med mal cases. So if you work at the VA, you cannot be sued. What if you do something egregious? There, there are limits on that. But because you have federal indemnification, the government holds that liability. I want to take a pause because we're kind of going fast and into this development. And, yeah. you know, so you're getting some advice, et cetera. And later on, we'll get into some of the specifics if people are interested in starting their own program. But you go out and you're starting in a Subaru and mm -hmm. eventually you get a Sprinter. Okay, that's great. <laughs> but there's that point of first contact, mm -hmm. right? You you have gone from working in an emergency department where when there is someone who presents who is homeless, who does not have resources, they're in a sterile environment. It's clean sheets. It's nicely lit. Everybody's warm. It's, it's great. But now you're out on the street and this is the first time you're doing it. What were you feeling inside? And what was that point of first contact? It was completely exhilarating. I think it speaks a little bit to the ethos of emergency medicine, because in many ways, though in the ER, it's an entirely controlled environment, we're pretty used to walking around, parting the curtains and walking into, mm, I don't know. With that said, it was it was slightly terrifying. You know, as E.E. E. Cummings put it, I walked bang through, banged with terror through a million stars. And it was so humanly gratifying because we immediately met with friendly faces and people that were curious and excited that we were there and warm and received our, our help and our offers, but also just had a nice conversation. And almost immediately, I started to realize, because I had never done this work before, that it's an incredibly complex and heterogeneous population. 
Um, it turns out homelessness is not just one monolithic group. It's not just the person that you step over in the doorway to the business you're going to. It turns out that these are communities. These are vibrant communities. And yes, there's there's rife addiction and there's rife mental health problems and there is tremendous trauma in this in this community. But these are cohesive communities. Very often we'll go and we'll ask at a tent, hey, how you doing? Need any help today? You know, Portland Street Medicine, just out checking on folks. There's so many ways to introduce yourself because you could say, hey, how's it going? Well, what do you want? But you say, hey, how's it going? You need anything today? Portland Street Medicine. Yep. You've identified yourself. You've put the ask out there. And now it's if the answer is no. That's the amazing part, actually. If the answer is no, it's, hey, have a great day. And you keep walking. And that's one of the salient differences from the ER. When you come into the ER, we own that problem, you and I. But do you, when you leave, do you leave... But you said that socks and tangerines were the most, I think said socks and tangerines. Do you leave some socks and tangerines? Oh, sure. I mean, we hand wound supplies. We leave a card and say, hey, here's our number. We have a number that people can call if they have questions and concerns. We do track patients. And so we'll, we'll circle back. So again, part of the key is continuity because the first time we do it, everybody was like, you're Portland who? But then when you're coming out in week two and week three and week six and week 12, it's like, oh, it's the street medicine team and we're recognizable. We wear similar gear, right? Red t-shirt. We have a stethoscope around our necks. And um, that starts to build that continuity and that trust that's so important. And the fact that as a clinician, the experience is so different. You're out doing the same thing you would normally do, which is asking somebody how they are and how you can help. But the very nature that you're just out there offering and they can say yes, or they can say, no, I'm good. And if they say, no, I'm good, you just walk on to the next person somehow fundamentally changed the caregiving experience. And it made it so easy to connect with the empathy with anybody you spoke with. As you're saying that, I I just, I think about the probably thousands of interactions I've had in the emergency department. It'd be someone who is histrionic or maybe has a borderline personality. It's usually not schizophrenia or whatever, some kind right. of psychosis in street, but, but somebody who really just like sucks the soul yeah. out of you. Oh, God, and, you yeah. and, and you have no choice but to go from start to finish. Yeah. And it's like, you okay. that problem with that person. Yes. You are locked in a problem that you both have to resolve. And they really want you to own yes. that problem. You think, okay, I will care for you. You're a human being, but I cannot wait for this to be done. Right. Because you are really sucking probably a day or two of life out of me here. Not only that, you own that social interaction, which is challenging. Think about the care experience. I think it involves the provider and the patient. And we often don't think about both sides of that equation. But on top of that, you own the risk. So you're trying to sort out what is an incredibly complicated social story and 18 different symptoms and complaints. And you're trying to thread this needle to figure out Could you have a PE? Could you have something that if I discharge you is going to come back to haunt me? When I'm out on the streets, those thoughts are still going through my head. It's not that I'm left clinical medicine behind, but somehow the interaction is different. And the recognition is there that my resources are limited. I don't have a CT scanner. I don't have all these things. So do I send people to the ER occasionally? Yes. You walk up and and someone says, oh yeah, I'm really having chest pain. Yeah. Or I'm having abdominal pain. Yeah. Chest pain, I think is probably a little easier. It's like, you need to just go get that checked out. Not much good happens in the chest that causes pain. Although some things that are not big. Correct. Although when you start talking to them, they turns out they've had that chest pain for three months. Then we may say, you know what, let's get you into a clinic and we can make an appointment. We're going to get you over there. We'll even cab you over there if we need to. You're out there in the street. You have the social worker to tie Mm -hmm. people into whatever resources you have, the doctor and the nurse. 
Do you have a clinic as well? Your own clinic or you you are. That's actually part of the magic secret sauce of Portland street medicine. This was an intentional strategic move early on that has made our life complicated, but has been really important. I think to our success, because we realized as we started talking about wanting to do this work and what we were trying to build, there was a need for it. There was a gap in the care spectrum, if you will, in all the social services that serve this community. But understandably, there's also some inherent competition among social services because organizations are trying to sustain funding. And if I have a clinic, I need to get patients into my clinic and secure that funding so I can keep my clinic open and continue to serve the community. What we wanted to do was position ourselves in a place where we could serve anybody's patients anytime for any reason and never be a threat to them. Do the clinics ever contact you guys to follow up on their patients? So we actually see ourselves as serving three Oh key my gosh, you're blowing my mind. Right. So the first population we serve is obviously the folks on the street. And, and we do that all the time. And we, we, we love that. That is the primary mission. But it turns out the second population that we serve is other social services agencies where we are essentially a concierge medicine arm to the work that they're already doing. So maybe they're dealing with addiction with a client. Maybe they're working on housing with somebody and it turns out that person's a diabetic and they've got a bad wound and they'll call us and they'll say, Hey, we've got a client. This is their general description. This is their name. They're usually around this corner. Can you guys see if you can follow up with them? And we will go out and try and find and connect with those patients. And we've had some really, really wonderful stories where the patient was working and trying to get into housing, had some health issues. And the fact that we were able to come together with the other agency and see them in the motel that they were temporarily housed in and get them onto the straight and narrow, got them into the clinic, got them back on their meds, got them off the streets. It's a really exciting process. I want to get to something that is intense and complex and something that is totally mundane Mm -hmm. yet extremely important. Hypertension. Mm -hmm. A lot of homeless have hypertension. I think they're just probably on a constant sympathetic state, poor diet, et cetera, and a lot of comorbidities. How do they get their meds? And then how do you surveil their blood pressure? You know, you've kind of have these, these paper records yeah. and how do you clean your blood pressure cuffs? I mean, yeah. there's a logistics of yeah. that too. Yeah. Hypertension is a great example. Um, we all know hypertension is a marathon, not a sprint. Okay. Trainees listening out there. Uh, I know there's a lot of trainees. <laughs> Think about that when you want to lower someone's blood pressure acutely, <laughs> who's not having an emergency, hypertension emergency. It's a marathon, not a sprint. So in a marathon, you don't want to start out too fast. Right. Oh, man. I feel like I need to clean the floor because my mind's getting blown so many times here. All right. So back to... So we. this is where the social worker comes in. Literally, our social workers are so knowledgeable about the landscape and the resources. And what's incredible is... The resources do exist. There actually is a powerful social fabric. It's complicated. It's hard to navigate. It's siloed, despite everybody's best intentions. One of the things that we do is help people navigate that. Say, you know what? Four blocks from here, there's a clinic, and we know the clinic manager, and we're going to see if we can get you in. Is this where you're camping right now? And sometimes they'll say, no, I don't really want to. We do write prescriptions, and we'll cab people to a pharmacy to get the script filled. So we do do some limited primary care for that kind of thing to start people out. We take a small subset of people that we consider high risk that require intensive management, and we will focus on them and see them almost weekly for a period of time. Um, maybe they just came out of the hospital and they're complicated and we feel like we need to help them stabilize and they're not in a place where they're going to easily cross the bridge to, to follow up at the clinic or to get shelter. But those, that's intentionally a, a smaller population overall. 
And then we monitor and we say, look, this is important. And here's a bunch of ways you can check your blood pressure and you can go to the pharmacy and just do the free blood pressure check there. And, and this is something that's important. And we'd love to come back and check it again when we're, when we see you here and we'll be around next week. The reality is it doesn't always work. I mean, you got to be honest, right? This is a challenging population. This is a heavily traumatized population. There's so many barriers but you feel like you're making an honest, good faith attempt. You feel like you're making an approachable attempt. And you're hoping that at some point, they're going to meet you halfway and you'll connect on that continuity level. How do you check their blood pressure? I mean, because oftentimes, especially in Portland in the winter, you have eight layers of clothing on. You're out there in the in the rain. Yeah. Um, we... Uh, I know it's such a funny, it's such a, no, it's a great, fet it's a great question. Basic, no, 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 no. It's a, it's a great question. So um, people will, will happily actually disrobe to that degree so we can check a blood pressure. We have two different kinds of encounters. We have clinical encounters that we actually write a note on, take some vital signs. And then we also have a lot of social encounters where it's just a, an issue with care coordination or housing, or they need a blanket or they need this and that. And so those are two different scenarios. But if we're really caring for somebody medically, and I have concerns about their blood pressure and that sort of thing, then I will say, Hey, I need to check your blood pressure. And, and if we need to, we can go back to the van where we have an awning and it's covered and we can do it there as well. You have one of, one of those kind of, we do yeah. winch yeah, we, awnings. We've yeah. kitted out the van now and it's super cool. It's like a, a mobile street medicine unit. It's pretty, pretty is it, amazing. Is it painted actually. red? Like your colors? It is gray with our red logo on the side. Oh, it's pretty that's, cool. That's badass. Yeah, yeah. It's pretty fun. How do they pay for the meds? So we have coupons that we give a lot of patients are insured. Uh, we actually also to the Oregon health plan. Mm -hmm, yep. Yeah. And we also will occasionally had health plan, Oregon health plan folks in the field with us signing people up for insurance in the field, which is also powerful. And then we have a number of gift cards and things like that, that we uh, have and can give as donations. You and I both know dirty little secret here. This is for the lay public listening <laughs> to this, that the stethoscope. Yeah. 99% of the time in our career is a vestigial organ. Yes. It is the appendix of men. Okay, Grant, sometimes, sometimes you'll hear that big murmur and you know they need an emergent valve replacement or, you know, the asthmatic, I think, right. it, I think is helpful or heart failure. But right. for the most part, it just allows you to, you know, put your hands on a patient. But you were talking before about pulling back and what is the lowest tech way? What is the lowest resource utilization way that I can evaluate someone or I can treat someone? So that tool, your stethoscope, I was looking at a picture of you and you've got a, you got a stethoscope around your neck uh -huh. and I think maybe that's kind of become important again. Well, yes. Although it's primary importance, I'll be honest with you is as a symbol because it says I care because it says I'm here to help you because it says I'm non-threatening. Many people have been traumatized by healthcare experiences. So we, we have to be cautious about that. And we actually do a lot of training with our volunteers on trauma-informed care, which has also made me think differently about the way we handle things in the ER often. But the stethoscope is as much to open doors, open minds, open hearts to say, hey, I'm just here to listen. And you would probably agree from your own clinical experience, even in the ER, to your point, the stethoscope has rarely changed your management. More often than not, it was the history, it was the context, maybe the vitals, but the physical exam finding with the stethoscope doesn't tend to overwhelm you sometimes someone has become homeless because of severe mental illness mm -hmm. and they're often not getting medications and they are just floridly constantly psychotic and it's just they are on a different reality plane than you and it's scary mm -hmm. or you know there's others i mean there's violence and it's just a it, it can be an intense environment in that way 
Do you ever feel that your security is at risk? Do you ever go out at night? I mean, what, yeah. what, are, what are the steps that you take to mitigate that? Actually, I haven't felt particularly threatened. We have had a few episodes where things escalated a bit. And the great part is the first response is let's back away. It's okay. If you're threatened and you're acting violent, then the first thing we're going to do is back away and keep everybody safe. Are you free to speak as to what happened? We've had a couple of uh, scenarios. We had one patient who there was concern that they may be making suicidal comments and they appeared to be altered, probably on meth, and they got somewhat aggressive and then dashed off through the forest. And so the team was left with, whoa, that felt a little scary. And now there's somebody suicidal who dashed off through the forest. What do we do in this scenario? What was interesting was several other members of the community. And again, this, this circles back to this concept that these are actually quite cohesive communities. Several other members of the community, the local tent mates uh, of this person said, oh yeah, no, we know him. He does that and makes those comments. We're not particularly concerned, but we're going to send two people out to go find him because we know where he usually goes. So there are ways of, of feeling feeling like uh, you could address the situation. You know, we were considering, do we need to call 911? Is this one of those scenarios? The few times we have some safe words and we train our teams if there's a safe word how to extricate ourselves and if anybody reaches a threshold where they feel that there's a security risk then we'll just pull the team back it's worked well and our teams have felt safe in the field we were talking before the interview about susanna yeah there's this whole spectrum of what could be happening right i mean these are human beings mm -hmm. just like any they just happen to be in a really crappy situation but susanna she had some serious business going on. More often than not, the medicine is stupidly simple, but sometimes it's not. And you do run upon sick patients. And the team that saw her identified, whoa, she's in a heck of a lot of pain. She'd been going around trying to connect with a clinic and struggling, trying to decide whether she should call 911. And when we saw her on the streets, she had frank peritonitis. She was tachycardic, I believe had a fever. And we said, okay, clearly you're sick and we're going to get you into the ER and we're going to accelerate this process. Do you call the ED to let them know there's coming? Yeah, we do. And we send them with a card. Sometimes if somebody's altered, we'll actually send a volunteer with them to sit in the ER waiting room to try and provide that continuity because that's one of the pieces that is so lacking. And we know this, all of us who work in the ER, sometimes the call-in that you get or the field report you get is fragmentary or you don't hear it until you're two hours into the case. And so that handoff is a really, really essential piece. And it turns out that she was sick. She had a ruptured appy and uh, ended up quite sick in the hospital for a good period of time. And then after that, we followed up with her for a period of weeks to try and facilitate her getting to her follow-up appointments, make sure that she was feeling better. And we were coordinating with her outpatient teams and her surgeons saying, hey, we saw her this week. This is what we're seeing. She's back on her meds. Oh, she's off her antibiotics and going back and forth. And that proved to be a pretty effective process. And then at some point we were able to say, okay, we're going we're gonna to back off now. She seems to have stabilized some. But she's highlighted in one of our videos, um, she and her partner. And, and her partner says something that I think is really profound. And he says, you know, when we go into a clinic or into the hospital, we're identified as homeless and treated as homeless. And what's unique about the street medicine teams is they just treat us as people and we don't have to pretend to be something that we're not. And we can be honest about our homelessness. And I think that that again gets back to those roots of empathy and the basic honesty of the interaction. And it leaves me wondering, how can we build that into 
our established healthcare system? How can we bring those lessons back into the massive system that we've created? The interaction that we as clinicians, that we in medicine, for the most part, has this passive aggressive adversarial aspect to Mm -hmm. it that oftentimes we think that they're trying to pull one over on us or try to get something from us and then they don't have follow-up care and it's just kind of oh my god we see them because they have this aspect of their lives that they are homeless that they are other they are not like us man i I can remember like a couple moments in my life i remember seeing the movie the pursuit of happiness where Will Smith was this you know, super functional guy, you know, really highly educated and down on his luck and, and homeless. Whoa. And I, and I remember at that point, I was like lamenting some stupid thing about work. I was like, well, I'm glad I have a job. And walking around Portland one day, having some conversations with many different homeless people and you know, a- asking them what they need. It's kind of a long story. I mean, we'll tell someday future on the podcast, but just decided to just start talking and having conversations like, whoa, well, first off, They're just people, just like we are people with the same failings. They kind of got buffeted by some bad wind in life and they have the same needs that we do probably more yet our natural instinct or, or some instinct is to out on the street is to at minimum ignore at maximum shun that carries over into the emergency department. If I was in a situation, I would be in this ER every day trying to get a meal and trying to get this. And right, that. I mean, I, right? I mean, and human I, survival. Instance, right, exactly. Right? Yeah. I can't believe that they're as gracious as they're being. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's almost like each individual needs to have a transformation and lose that hardness. But, but then you've kind of got to recharge that, that empathy. I mentioned earlier on that we serve three populations. And the first was the people on the street. The second was the other social services agencies that we collaborate with. The third is actually the provider community, because this has been the most potent antidote to burnout I've ever experienced in my career. It has given me more hope, more excitement about my clinical job when I'm in the ER and about the work on the streets. And every single person that we've taken out in the field, everybody that you spontaneously made the leap to your credit and just sat down next to somebody and said, hey, can we talk? Tell me your story. When you start doing that, it opens up arenas that I had, I think, somewhat closed off. And I think it's important to try and get providers back to the roots of empathy of why we went into this. It also has really reformed my thinking about how we structure healthcare. How many times in your career, Rob, have you been called by friends or family saying, hey, my kid just, or they have a fever of, and I, do I need to, should I go to the ER? Should I call my doctor? Should, you, right? you, want, you want to see my text stream? Right, exactly, right? We all get it. Because <laughs> now it comes with pictures. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And honestly, it's, it's fun. I'm yeah, always happy yeah, to ex- do it because exactly. it's something that you can do. And it means so much to your friend yes. or family member because they're like, oh, thank you. I feel so much better. Although I'll tell you, the med mal attorneys are probably listening to this going like, no, don't do that. Don't do, right, or at least record right. it. Put it in a document. Or that's something. right. Yeah. No, and to that end, it's honest advice. You're just listening to a story and saying, you know, I think you're going to be okay. Let's do this. Or yeah, you probably ought to go into the ER. So, so that uncertainty exists in all of us as patients. It doesn't matter if you're homeless and the homeless have the same exact uncertainties. Am I sick? Do I need to do this? What, what do I have to do for my health? And I'm afraid that I could be sick because it turns out having an illness is 
fundamentally destabilizing and disorienting. So that made me think more about patient journey mapping. And I started mapping the journeys of the patients that I see in the ER. And I start going upstream and saying, when did that actually start? And what were the steps that they went through in the decision-making process to get there? There's a fascinating paper out of, I think, University of Pittsburgh on what's called the uncertainty principles in healthcare decision-making. And they outline seven different elements of uncertainty that patients face when they're trying to make healthcare decisions. And it made me think, gosh, this is what we should be focusing on. People want to know, I don't know if I'm sick. People come to the ERs because they're worried. And there's so much of a push to get people out of the ER. And I get that. There's, there's good reason and logic behind that. But posters in the ER saying you should go to an urgent care aren't going to answer that question. We have to think about a healthcare system that actually connects with patients as people, as us. And we have to re-engineer a system that doesn't just, uh, you know, we kind of have a complex system that delivers care, but it doesn't really care for the people. So can we figure out a way to start upstream to be that resource to help guide patients to the right resource at the right time? Then our ERs get used appropriately. Then we're involved in the spectrum of their care and acute unscheduled care is a big part of people's life experience. It's still, we still need primary care. It's not doing away with that, but it's made me think differently about emergency medicine and acute unscheduled care and, and what the possibilities and opportunities there might be. A physician is listening to this. A nurse is listening to this. Paramedic. I, many people listen to this. Sure. <laughs> all, walks, all walks of life. What would you say would be one shift that they could make? A mental exercise or, just so, or, or a way that they approach patients who are homeless in the clinical setting, not even they're going out on the street, but mm -hmm. just they're going into work tomorrow. And it said, Oh, I see a guy who is having a headache mm -hmm. and he's homeless. Mm -hmm. What would be one effective tool that they could employ or execute to improve that interaction and then improve that person's life that wouldn't have been done before? Yeah. This sounds almost rude to say and almost simple to say is to care. I know as a clinician, when I get to about hour six of my shift and I'm maxed out and I have a full complement <laughs> of patients and I'm getting interrupted every 90 seconds, when I pick up the next patient, I'm basically just trying to elicit a chief complaint and a couple of about five or 10 data points I need to make a decision <laughs> yes. and move on. Yes. Your, your status as a holy man has completely- It's completely gone. gone. I'm just being yes. perfectly honest here, right? And- then I've dehumanized myself and I've dehumanized the patient in front of me. More people are homeless than we are possibly aware of. They are more heavily traumatized. Half to two thirds of women on the streets are victims of sexual violence. Human trafficking is rampant in the Pacific Northwest. Addiction, there are no services to speak of for addiction and mental health treatment. So it's out there, even in patients that you probably don't even think are homeless actually are. There's 20,000 kids in Oregon who are homeless, 10% of which 2000 kids are unsheltered homeless kids going to school every day that you see for a sports injury may very well be homeless. Starting to ask some honest questions. Where do you live? How's this going to go? What's going to happen when you leave the ER? Tell me about what's going to happen and starting to think more about how they got to you and where they're going to go after you is the first step in starting to build more awareness. And as you do that, you'll find actually you start to do that with all your patients and you learn more. Um, the second piece would be start to learn more about the resources in your area. It turns out there were huge amounts of resources around me that I didn't even know existed. And it's, it's possible to connect people with those organizations. 
somebody wants to, somebody wants to do this. How do you take this from idea to getting in your Subaru with your backpack <laughs> and seeing that first patient? I mentioned the International Street Medicine Institute, extraordinary organization, and just connecting with other people that are doing it is a, an important first step. Growing an organization, starting an organization, certainly starting a nonprofit does involve a whole bunch of really boring administrative stuff. Do you do fundraisers? Because clearly uh -huh. this takes money. <laughs> yeah. One of the best things we did was hire a grant specialist and a funding specialist early on who's been doing nonprofit work for years. Nothing says high maintenance like a sprinter van. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Growing a nonprofit is so different than running a, a, another business and trying to scale it and make it sustainable is is a huge undertaking, but it turns out it is feasible to do. And I want to, we'd like to create a recipe book to see if we can help other organizations or other clinicians that want to approach that. Can people contact you guys through your website and say, sure. Hey, I'd like to do a walk along and just see, see yeah. how things happen. Yeah. We do uh, invite people out. We're always striking a balance between we want to get teams uh, existing teams into the field so they can do the work. We try and bring shadowers out periodically as well. And if people are interested in joining with us, they shadow to see what the work is like. And then we go through a credentialing process to get them onto our teams. And they go through some basic training. There's a, a moderate commitment. You know, we, we hope that over the course of the year, you'll commit a certain number of shifts just because we're putting in the effort to credential you and all that sort of stuff. Having done this for a few years with Portland Street Medicine, do you have a different approach, a different perspective on just the practice of medicine and how you interact with all of your patients and how you see your job? It's made me slow down. What do you mean by that? Well, it's made me <clears throat> recognize that in order to be effective, I need to find those roots of empathy in every encounter. And that's actually what brings me joy in the work that I do. Unfortunately, our healthcare system honestly, our own profession has created often a treadmill that we have to spin faster and faster and doesn't always lend itself to rewarding some of the best parts about what we do or how we do it. Okay. So you work in an environment where a lot of things are not under your control. You know, you've got, oh, well, it's okay. Three ambulances just came in. Nothing I can do about that. I got to go see, go see these three critical patients. So sometimes you can't slow down, but are you able to slow down in the midst of that compared to what you were doing before? Yeah, I mean, I think slower, slow down can be in a microcosm. Obviously, we all have to respond to surges. The ER is the ER. And honestly, that's part of what we love about what we do also. But forcing yourself to really focus on the patient in front of you, forcing yourself to have some of those slightly deeper conversations, and sometimes just recognizing that this is hard, recognizing that follow-up is going to be hard. I would curtail those conversations because I knew they were awkward and I knew there wasn't good follow-up and I knew this wasn't going to work, even though this was the plan. And sometimes I'm more honest about that now in just saying, there's no good way to do this follow-up. I, I foresee this is going to be a problem. Here's the best I can offer, but we're going to have to work together on this because this seems like this is going to be an issue. I've got your t-shirt and I think it's probably going to be on Etsy in a week. Slow down and find joy. There you go. Nice. nice. All right. That's Thank it. you. Thank you so much, Dan. Thanks. You can find out more regarding what Dan and Portland Street Medicine are up to at portlandstreetmedicine.org. Or you can just go to our website where we'll have a link to that. We'll have a link to all of the other stuff we discussed in the show notes. Until next time, my friends, don't just think, think differently. 
Mm, I don't know. Still working on the catchphrase. Maybe that one will stick. Maybe not. Okay. Either way, follow your bliss. Ah, nope. That one's taken. We'll see you next time. <laughs>